welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Ravit Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, in the final episode of our special series on the future of transport, we'll be speeding through some of our busiest cities to explore how to keep people and products on the move without costing the earth. With 7 out of 10 people expected to live in urban areas by 2050, the need to move away from fossil fuel transport systems is urgent. We know that our toxic air is killing people. It's the first time air pollution has been cited on a death certificate. The large cities that we have today with six ring roads certainly cannot be the way that we imagine uh, the, the cities of the future in doing it. 1.4 million people are killed every year in, in traffic accidents. The situation of traffic congestion, we can almost call it chronic. From flying taxis and high-speed pods to better bus routes and bike lanes, the urban transport systems of the future look as unique and varied as the cities they might one day serve. The challenge they all share is to ensure billions of citizens can safely get around and enjoy healthy, equitable lives in our urban spaces. We travel from Sao Paulo to London, Montreal to Kampala, to speak to transport planners, pioneers and professors, all rising to the challenge of creating more sustainable cities. That's on this episode of Outrage and Optimism. Thanks for being here. This episode of the podcast is brought to us by our very special sponsor. Who is that, Paul? Neste. Neste. We're so grateful to Neste, aren't we? What do they do? Do you, do you think they could be in the business of fighting climate change? I'm sure they're in the business of fighting climate change. I don't think they'd be sponsors of our show if they weren't. They probably wouldn't be. And do you think that they produce renewable fuels or do you think they invest in circular solutions? I wouldn't be at all surprised if they did both. Do you think they do? That would be very impressive. I really, they did both. I, genuinely, I do. Okay. And which country do you think they're from? Well, I think they're from Finland but I wouldn't be at all surprised if their products went all around the world. They probably do, don't they? We're very grateful to them. Thank you, Neste. Thank you. Dear friends, cities are where the climate battle will largely be won or lost. With more than half the world's population, cities are on the front lines of sustainable, inclusive development. With air pollution a grave and growing issue, people look to you to champion better urban air quality. With environmental degradation driving migration to urban areas, people rely on you to make your cities heavens for diversity, social cohesion, and job creation. You are the world's first responders to the climate emergency. That was United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres speaking at the C40 World Mayors Summit in 2019. As he said, cities are at the heart of the global race to reach net zero by 2050. And how we move around them in the decades to come will be crucial in bending the emissions curve. Kevin Maino, an associate professor in the Department of Geography and the Beeler School of Environment at McGill University, says lessons can be learned from the past. I think one of the most interesting things in the sort of resurgence of this idea of walkable cities and, and livable cities is, is actually going back, you know, not, not just sort of decades or so, but, you know, even, even millennia to think about how for, for thousands of years, you know, human settlements were based on, you know, how far a person could walk in 20 or 30 minutes. And, and so, you know, villages and towns and cities you know, for literally over a millennia kind of developed to be very compact and, and places where people could, you know, could live and, you know, where they, where they slept and worked and, and interacted with other people, engaged in, in government, engaged in, in civic activities. We're all very close together. And, you know, and I sometimes often think of, you know, the 20th century, I, I would hope is, is, is looked back as this kind of anomaly where we kind of, where we thought, okay, we thought we could just locate our daily activities so far from one another and, and go back to, to a world where we actually don't need, um, you know, all this energy and space and, and ownership of, 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 you know, 
many ton vehicles per household to, to get around every day. And, and so I often think about sort of this, this almost like not sort of going towards the future, but almost this sort of, you know, back to the future type of idea of saying, you know, it's really about how we organize space, how we allocate space, um, how we, you know, how we mix land uses to make sure people can still, um, you know, live and work and, and in play and socialize and engage and, and, their activities as citizens you know, without having to travel very far distances. For, for many decades, especially again in the 20th century, um, a lot of the sort of planning, um, the sort of engineering side of, of transport has been focused on sort of efficiency and, and sort of fast movement of, of people. And a lot of the work that I'm involved in and the folks that I interact with are, are kind of realizing, well, it, maybe there's other aspects or priorities that the transport systems could have um, that are based on, you know, not just efficiency and fast movement, um, but all these other things that we do when we're, um, you know, transport systems can be designed to to foster, you know, better health in, in people by, by, you know, by walking and cycling, um, foster better social interactions, um, these these ideas of equity, you know, who, who is welcome in, in various spaces on, on various modes, you know, making sure everyone can can access what they need, um, you know, in you know, a normal amount of time, but kind of moving away from this idea of let's make sure everything's fast, let's make sure make sure everything's efficient, but let's make sure things are, are equitable and, and, and accessible to all people. Slowing down the pace of life in our cities and creating more safe spaces for pedestrians is in theory a positive step forward. But without careful planning, the so-called greening of cities could just add to the problems of inequality. I often use the Highline as as this kind of cautionary tale here that that you know it's on the surface it looks like such a successful project that you know that took unused rail lines took something that was often seen kind of visually you know, as kind of scar on the on that part of Manhattan and and turn it into this thing that that's you know arguably the most safe or convenient or you know a place to walk you know maybe anywhere um but you know has had profound impacts on 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 property value on on affordability on issues of inclusion exclusion in terms of who not only might feel welcome in that space but more importantly who can live you know within two or three blocks of, of that i think one of the one of the biggest issues is this this kind of premium that we're paying for sort of so-called sort of, you know, green and sustainable cities. And I think one of the worst outcomes, worst possible outcomes is if these kind of, you know, places that can, you know, benefit health and well-being and, and inclusion and, and environmental um, sustainability, if these places are unaffordable to, to people, I mean, that's, you know, we're very obviously not moving forward in terms of anything that I would want to call sustainability. But some cities are managing a successful transition to sustainable mobility solutions. Some of the best examples, if I think of what's what's currently happening in Paris, for example, um, you know, places like Oslo and, and places where you know political leadership at a sort of local level, at a, at a sort of mayoral level, are realizing the importance of banning cars or, or opening streets to people, and maybe a more positive way to think about it, um, you know, and things, you know, expanding pedestrian networks, expanding um, bike networks. In the city that I'm in, in, in Montreal, uh, the, the, the current mayor, Valerie Plante, has also faced a lot of criticism for, for that same kind of that same kind of leadership of, of trying to say let's let's refocus our, our, our transport on active modes on, on walking and cycling and let's rethink how we make decisions about about transport one of her promises in her election campaign was was the so-called pink line of the of the metro system and which was one of the first subway systems I'm aware of that was very explicitly presented as, you know, and, and defended um, to, to sort of focus on equitable access, you know, to, to get this, we need this, this subway, not because it'll make people go faster, you know, because in socially disadvantaged parts of the city, you know, people need more access to their daily activities. But it was really, it was really sort of um, put, put forth as, as a social justice or social equity or mobility justice issue, which I think was, which was very impressive, I think. And, and, and I've also been impressed by how she's you know, withstood um, political opponents and, and trying to sort of reframe how we, how we think about and define transport systems. We 
we know that um, our toxic air is killing people. Uh, we've just seen the outcome of the inquest of the little girl, Ella Adu Kissy Deborah. Um, it's the first time air pollution has been cited on a, on a death certificate. That's Shirley Rodriguez, London's Deputy Mayor for Environment and Energy, talking about Ella Kissy Deborah, who suffered from a rare and severe form of asthma. She lived in an area of London where levels of nitrogen dioxide air pollution from traffic regularly exceeded the legal limit. Ella was just nine years old when she died in 2013. I asked Shirley how tragic cases like this can drive change in a city which has such a legacy of fossil fuel transport. There is an imperative there to, to look at that, um, that health impact and to look at how, as a, as a leader, a city leader, you know, you're taking along uh, your citizens and all the stakeholders in London to tackle that issue. And of course, we have to look at um, making sure that our city still functions economically, that people can still access um, transport and, and do what they, they want to do in, in social terms and so on. But, you know, it's absolutely key that um, that we tackle those health impacts, which have huge, you know, social costs, economic costs, costs to our NHS. Since Sadiq uh, Khan, the mayor, were, the mayor of London, was elected in 2016, we've seen the number of schools in uh, areas of pollution, NO2 pollution, really drop uh, by about 97%. So it shows through the sort of combination of policies that the mayor has brought in around um for example, um, expanding public transport, making it more accessible, more affordable uh, by promoting more walking and cycling um, and then by discouraging and incentivising people to use their cars less, particularly the, the polluting cars. So the signature policy uh, he's brought in was the ultra-low emission zone in central London in the sort of area of the congestion charging zone. Um, and that has seen a very rapid and dramatic uh, cut in air pollution of around 44% in NOx, NO2 rather, and about 6% in carbon emissions. So we have lovely organisations, NGOs like Moms for Lungs, um, you know, Friends of the Earth, you know, Greenpeace and others, many others, you know, as long alongside our health professionals, you know, our royal colleges and, and the medical um, professionals who have come together to really advocate for, for the need to move to a more sustainable lifestyle because they see that, you know, as a sort of quality of life issue, not just as a health issue or as an environmental issue. Yeah, and, and a social justice issue as well, right? That it's all about, it's about actually being able to breathe air that's not going to kill you. I mean, that's that's yeah. how you kind of bring everybody involved and you realise that actually you can create something that's positive for everybody. That's, that's very yeah. exciting. So what's so fascinating about your job is it's been through so many iterations as a city, right? And it's sort of still in the grips of the fossil fuel world, but you're kind of working to bring it out of that. What does that look like, that future of urban mobility? I mean, give us a snapshot of the future. The mayor has set a target for 80% of our of trips to be made um, on public transport or active transport, so walking and cycling. Um, and then the remainder of the vehicle, uh, of the trips, uh, will be in, in, in vehicles, but, you know, some uh, private vehicle trips, but, but obviously we want those, those to be as limited as far as possible to support the sort of uh, economic fabric of the city, so the delivery vehicles and so on. And we want those to be much cleaner vehicles, preferably mm. electric, and that's, we, you know, we've done a big push for example, uh, in 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 um, trying to electrify um, the transport in London, providing the, the sort of supportive mechanisms to do that within the powers that the mayor has. Mm. Cities are home to so many people; they are the you know the source of uh, of, of carbon emissions, you know, because because of the infrastructure there, but obviously the people in terms of consumption and so on. So the ability to act is in the cities, and many cities are taking action. Um, you know, when governments weren't, you know, for example, when, you know, when the US government wasn't, we saw cities and, and regions step up to say, we're going to carry on, take on, uh, take on this, um, this role, because it's so important to our citizens and to the futures of our cities. Um, many other cities around the world have been, um, you know, instrumental in helping governments to, to, to go further and faster. You know, I think we've just seen uh, in, in Japan, for example, the work of cities uh, really pushing the government to adopt a tougher target. And the same, I think, would be said in, in London, you know, many of the, uh, the policies that 
that, that we've been pushing forward in London. Uh, you know, we're really great to see uh, the government has is now espousing, you know, for example, like phasing out uh, fossil fuels by 2030, uh, a zero carbon standard for homes and buildings. These are all things that have been piloted in cities that governments uh, eventually catch on. Without um, our action, whether it's cities or, or businesses or, you know, and, and NGOs and others, we're not going to be able to really make the take the action in this decade of action that, that we need. And one business that needs cities to step up and support its sustainable mobility ambitions is IKEA. I spoke to Pia Heidenmark-Cook, Chief Sustainability Officer. We know that mobility today, yes, it's fantastic because it's it's the kind of infrastructure of our society, just like energy, makes creates a lot of opportunities. But we also know that we have the problem of pollution, congestion. Yes, it's given us a lot, but it's also given us uh, an urban uh, environment that is not really people-friendly. So for us, uh, mobility is really a, a critical part of what we do, because it's about how people get to our stores, but it's also how we get the goods home to our customers. What we see and what we work with is on one side, uh, last mile delivery, uh, where we have committed to having 100% zero emissions or EV uh, by 2025. Uh, and that was really a, a bet on the future. There's a lot of opportunities, but there's equally amount of challenges. What we see is that um, because we are a life at home with small parcels, the delivery trucks that we use uh, are often not made for our kind of deliveries. So we need to really work together with the manufacturers. So we're working with two large manufacturers to really develop delivery trucks that works for us and, and, and our deliveries. So I, I would say availability of, of uh, the trucks. Uh, another one is, of course, infrastructure, uh, having EV uh, charging infrastructure, uh, which is available in some places, but not everywhere. Then the technology itself. Uh, if I take a concrete example, uh, China is actually our star uh, when it comes to home delivery. So we have uh, just uh, reached 90%. Uh, of all our home delivery in China, we have around 30 stores in China. Uh, it's now uh, with electric vehicles. We, we use about 10,000 trucks, uh, but we don't own them. So we work with service providers and they often work with the small companies that own their own uh, delivery trucks or, or, or cars. Uh, and for them, I mean, we all know that the price is still quite high. The initial investment is high and that deters some people. Some people are a bit afraid of stepping into to, into the new. So it's um, but fantastic opportunities because uh, you know it's uh, over the lifetime of the of the vehicle. It is a, a much smarter solution than what we have today. So having committed to zero emission last mile deliveries by twenty twenty five, where in the world is IKEA currently working to achieve this? We're deploying it now in twenty out of our thirty markets. We have focused on five cities to really go all in. We made an announcement two and a half years ago and we were in LA. So we announced it in LA. So we put LA as one of the five cities. Then it was also Paris, Amsterdam, New York and Shanghai. Uh, what we quickly learned was that uh, Shanghai uh, did it within a year. It was really fast. They had the infrastructure. They had a clear, um, clear signals from the mayor, from the city. Uh, technology was there, uh, the, the awareness. Uh, air pollution is huge in Shanghai, so there was this uh, big uh, need. Amsterdam, New York uh, uh, have been a bit more difficult. Uh, they are on track to, to achieve it uh, within the next few months. LA, super difficult. Uh, a combination of the, the asset light model with our suppliers uh, in, in uh, LA. Uh, the other reason being... Um, far in between infrastructure. So the charging was just simply not there because LA being such a sprawn out city. Uh, and then also, which is weird in a way with California, but awareness. But I would say again, it is the, the willingness and the openness and, and the mayor's office in LA is now super on board. But having the, the commitment from the government, from the city, um, the infrastructure, 
the setup uh, with the suppliers and the service providers in, in the specific city. Those are the key, the key elements. More and more cities, more and more countries are saying, you know, they will ban uh, diesel in, in the city center. We simply can't do business because 18% of our business today is uh, e-commerce. Uh, e-commerce is connected to home delivery. And if we can't drive into people's uh, homes, we can't do we can't do our business. So it's it's absolutely about the, the a business imperative. And it's the right thing to do. Maybe not, you know, maybe short term, higher investment cost. Longer term, we know it's a better product. Uh, so it's I would say it's win-win for, for, for people, for planet and for profit. As more of our city centres commit to banning fossil fuel powered vehicles, the challenge of trying to both lower emissions and meet the transport needs of burgeoning populations will be tough. We are observing, uh, especially in Africa and uh, in Asia, uh, cities are expanding quickly. The same phenomenon we observed in Latin America in the last decades. Sergio Avaleda is the Urban Mobility Director at the World Resources Institute Ross Center for Sustainable Cities. He's also the former Secretary of Mobility and Transport in Sao Paulo, Brazil, where he was responsible for managing the most extensive bus system in the world. By 1950, Sao Paulo had around 2 million people. And just right now, only the city, we are 11 million people. And in the metropolitan area, we are 23 million people in 39 different cities. But focusing on urban mobility, of course, prioritizing to public transport is essential because you know that cities are responsible for a large part of emissions around the world. So we should be focused to reduce emissions. To do it, first of all, we need to reduce travel desire and travel distances. On this point, urban plan is essential. Redesign neighborhoods, uh, connect people. And I'm not talking about a, a big investments, but for example, some cities during this pandemic, they implanted exclusive lanes. It's quick and cheaper to do, and it increases the efficiency of public transport. You need only paint and some signals to do it. Uh, prioritize walkability and especially cycle lanes. Bogota, for example, when we start the quarantine period, they opened streets for bicycles. They used to do it on Sundays and they became it permanent to incentivate people to travel by bicycles. We have different solutions for different cities, but in general, what we are recommending is prioritize space for public transport. In fact, Sergio's home city of Curitiba was the first in Brazil and only second in the world to build a bus rapid transit line, a so-called BRT. In the 90s, 1970s, they uh, opened the first BRT lines in the world. And what is interesting that they create a new urban plan saying you are allowed to densify the use of the land around the BRT lines. After 50 years, around 50 years, if you can fly over Curitiba by a helicopter, you will see this urban plan you see a lot of buildings, residential buildings, around these uh, BRT lines and no buildings uh, after three or four blocks from these BRT lines. It's amazing because uh, people, has a, people have a very good option to use public transport, so they don't need to have cars. So you all allow people to, to densify around these BRTs. And back in Sao Paulo, people were incentivized to use different forms of public transport thanks to one simple solution. They created a smart card. Okay, it's the, it, we have different smart cards around the world, but it allowed city to offer discounts on the integration. So in 2004, people used it to pay one fare for each leg on their trip. With this card, City offered for people to pay only one fare for three legs. 
It was a big revolution in the, in the use of public transport. People saved money, so they used much more public transport. And the second revolution was when the city government and the state government integrated the same card between buses and trains and metro lines. We transported around 2.2 million people per day before this integration. One year after this integration, without new lines, without new stations, we were transporting around 3.5 million. So we increased 50% of riderships on the metro because the fare integration. The second good example, I think, it is about the ride hailing services framework in regulation. Sao Paulo implanted a very good framework regulation to try to guide the ride-hailing services, Uber and other companies, on the public interest. So, first of all, they are paying for use the streets. They pay uh, part of their revenue, of its revenue, uh, is paying a public tax. And the city government is using these taxes to improve public transport quality. Second, we created a system that uh, these companies can obtain some discounts. For example, if a woman is driving the car, they have a discount in this payment. If the travel is offered in the without, uh, uh, far from the downtown, they receive another discount to incentivate them to maintain an offer in, in different areas, not only in the rich areas. Third, If the trip is doing by an electrical car, they receive a third discount and they can accumulate these discounts. So uh, it creates an economic rationality to design a better service, not only for the users, but for the whole society. So the key solutions, especially for big cities, for medium and big cities, uh, should be focused on public transport. No new technology is designed to transport 50,000 people per hour per direction. No shared vehicles, no scooters, no bicycles uh, are able to transport 50, 60, 70,000 people per hour per direction. Only BRTs or metro lines or train lines are able to do it. So uh, the public policy should be focused to electrify the public transport. But for some cities in the world, just trying to finance a public transport system is still hard to do. Yet, with 90% of urban population growth expected to take place in developing nations, a lack of climate-conscious planning could have profound consequences. Claire Birungi is the country manager in Uganda for the Institute for Transportation and Development Policy. Kampala is growing. The population of the city itself is approximately... 2 million, but during the day we have another 2 million coming from the outskirts coming into the city. Currently, our public transport system is supported by our mini bus taxis, which is a 14 seater capacity, which is low capacity vehicles, mostly old vehicles. And the roads, of course, the capacity is not um, sufficient. So there's a lot of traffic congestion, small capacity vehicles. And currently, we don't have um, a a mass public transport system that's operating in the city. So definitely the situation of traffic congestion, we can almost call it chronic right now. Uh, If we can organize the city and not replace, but transition and work together with the smaller capacity uh, public transport vehicles that we have right now to a mass public transport we think a lot of people would be able to move to it. And of course, it would make commuting and living in the urban city more easier or more friendly, or uh, it would be so much better, definitely. A public transport system in Kampala wouldn't just ease congestion. It would also help reduce social stigma. There is, of course, uh, social differences in that um, in the absence of public transport, the minibus taxis are not attractive to a certain class of people. So everyone almost in the middle class is almost forced to buy a car. As you advance in your career or in whatever form of work that you're trying to do, uh, owning a car is is a status symbol. So it's now being branded as if you're using public transport or you're working, you're from a certain class uh, of income, So which is 
which public transport would break a bit because this would be a good public transport for all and it would break that social barrier that's current there right now. So what improvements are being made to put the people of Kampala on a more equitable path? Our city has been making some significant steps. Initially, our infrastructure did not take care of like the 40% of the population that actually walks. So we did not have uh, sidewalks and cycle lanes and all kind of infrastructure for non-motorized users. But now the national roads agencies and the city authorities, when they are upgrading or maintaining roads, they are now including facilities for walking and cycling, which uh, benefits all the other class of people or any other person that actually wants to walk. And the city has also made um, some steps in developing public transport system. We don't have an operational one right now, but uh, in 2014, uh, with the support of the World Bank, uh, they did a detailed design for a bus rapid transit. So right now, one of the hindrances, or I can say the delays, is mainly in the funding, having the funding for the infrastructure and also forming the institutional planning that can set, uh, that will be responsible for the public transport. And despite fossil fuels currently dominating Africa's energy mix, Uganda is looking to homegrown companies to help develop a zero emissions public transport system. Kira Motors is one of the few electric vehicle manufacturers on the continent. Their plan right now is that they have developed buses that are zero carbon. And the infrastructure, they have had they have like prototypes or concepts in how they're going to develop areas where they're going to put the charging points, where they're going to do all the infrastructure to support uh, those types of buses. But of course, it's a new concept in most of the African cities. So when you talk about it on a large scale, it's very hard to comprehend for many. But I think Chiramoto's having been in, not in the business, I can say, but they seem to have done enough research and testing to be able at least to start on a lower scale because you need to start somewhere. So I think once given an opportunity, we can definitely bring on uh, buses or public transport services that can use uh, electric vehicles. And like many of its European counterparts, Kampala has reaped the benefits of banning cars from its central business district. I think one of the significant um, projects that the city has undertaken is called a non-motorized transport project. Uh, It's in the heart of the CBD where it was originally an area that was congested with cars and it was just almost impossible. And it's also the central business area. So the city took an initiative to redevelop it to only have access for pedestrians and cyclists. So in and accessing such an area from the nearby areas, they realized that the businesses are now booming. It's more attractive. People of a different class are now able to actually also go in those um, type of places. So I think these improvements in transport have a role in they play in individual people's lives in cities and also on other larger scale um, benefits, definitely. So while bike lanes and car bans are having positive impacts in some cities, groundbreaking technologies continue to evolve in others. Imagine a city where autonomous vehicles are roaming the streets, offering on-demand mobility and improving everyone's quality of life. This is the story. Once the stuff of science fiction, driverless cars may soon be coming to a city near you. One person who is closely following their journey is Robin Chase. She's the former CEO and co-founder of Zipcar, one of the world's first car-sharing companies. She spoke to Christiana about how harnessing the internet could be a game-changer for mobility. You basically established car sharing uh, as a concept and as a practice. However, move forward from that crazy new idea to now being the executive chairman of Venium, where you are building the networking fabric for the internet of moving things. What is the internet of moving things? Well, if we think about... um 
all the connected cars and autonomous vehicles and how we move around um, jumping from cellular spectrum to Wi-Fi spectrum, what we've realized is that people aren't stagnant and vehicles aren't stagnant. And we've kind of held, the, we kind of, we as lay people imagine that the cell connection works all the time, but we know it doesn't. So what Venium does is it chooses the piece of spectrum, meaning are you going to be on Wi-Fi? Are you going to be in cellular? Are you going to talk to the car in front of you that's closer to a Wi-Fi hotspot? How do we maximize the use of different types of spectrum to make the lowest cost and most reliable connection possible? It's a really complicated problem, having autonomous vehicles drive around the city. But the thing that those researchers are holding constant is this idea of the connection to the cloud. The reality is the connection to the cloud is not perfect and not constant, but it needs to be. So by using different pieces of spectrum in a very clever, reliable, and fancy method, you are connected all the time. But that piece of work is totally non-trivial. And so Venium um, is filling that gap. And as I say, it's, it's also being used for Amazon and UPS. Um, they want their trucks connected all the time for their various reasons, and this enables them to do that connection, again, reliably and cheaply, without having to worry about it. Autonomous vehicles, there, there was a time in which we thought that they would be happily driving around most cities of the industrialized countries, perhaps even by 2020. Yep. Where are we in the development of autonomous vehicles? And is this connectivity that you've just talked about that Venium is developing, is that one of the barriers to, let's say, normalizing autonomous vehicles or other other barriers? Where are we? What is the status of autonomous vehicles? So you are right that five years ago, I was on top of AVs and I was paying so much attention to them and all the car manufacturers we're kind of vying with each other. Oh, yeah, we're going to have them by 2019. No, by 2020. Oh, by 2021. And all the car manufacturers had lined up. So we're all scurrying around with terror as policymakers thinking, oh, my God, can we get this all in line? And what's happened in those intervening years is I'd say the last 2% of the vehicle, of autonomous vehicle technology is just way harder to resolve than was thought. Interesting. When we talk about autonomous vehicles, there are these five levels of automation possible in cars. And I'd say level zero is a kind of car you had in 1950. And level one would be, oh, anti-lock brakes. Like that is a type of automation that happens, you don't do anything, it takes over. When we talk about autonomous vehicles, in the public's mind, they see what we think of as level five, which means you can use an autonomous vehicle anytime, anywhere, any weather in the world. That's level five. We're not close to that. But level four, which is one step down, which is in specific geographies with a ge geographical fence, you know, a geofence, virtual fence around, you can operate. That's called level four. And we are actually in many places at that level four. That technology exists. Um, what is disagree disagreed about is what is the standard we hold autonomous vehicles to for safety relative to human drivers? Mm -hmm. And so right now, in many of the pilots... Not a this, small question, actually, a pretty powerful question. It's a powerful question, but what is intriguing to me around that question is we accept today, today cars are killing 1.3 million people in the world and maiming, I want to say, another 7 million. Like, it's not an insignificant number. And we just let, that's okay. You mean car drivers, because car it's drivers. the drivers behind Thank you. the wheel. Yeah, exactly, car exactly. <laughs> and so that's exactly the point. So today's drivers are, in fact, incredibly unsafe. And we've just accepted that as background noise to conduct our economies. When we come to autonomous vehicles, we, people, many people want to say, oh my God, it's now software that's driving these things. And we can't, we have to hold it to a higher standard that it has to be zero accidents. If I want to see an AV or experience it, what city would I go to? 
So yes, there is the other end of the spectrum, and famously is Waymo in Tucson, Arizona. And there, indeed, they have vehicles that are moving at real speeds. Um, and it's on again, off again. I think right now a certain number of people can call a Waymo car and use it just like a taxi, and it goes wherever they ask it to go at speeds that are normal car speeds, and again, in a geofenced location. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it strikes me, Robin, that all of the examples and the geofences that you have mentioned are actually in cities. Could could you speak to the city part of this? Why are cities such a big deal on addressing climate change? Why is transport such a big deal? Anything you do in a city, whatever you spend, whatever you do, you are touching way more people's lives than you would in a rural area. So if we think about going back to vehicles, any vehicle that you're going to be using, whether it's just a regular shared car from today or a taxi or an autonomous vehicle, you have to get a return on that investment. And as we move up the spectrum, cars themselves are expensive, but autonomous vehicles are even more expensive. We need to have that asset used to its maximum possibility. As we talk about shared assets versus privately owned assets, um, it's really an interesting transformation of what it means for the future of autonomous vehicles. So specifically, when I think about you owning your personal car, your decision to drive any place is how much does it cost to get there? If it's an electric one, is about one penny a kilometer or a penny and a half a mile. So in a city, we're moving... 20 miles an hour, so it's like 30 cents an hour to move a vehicle from a marginal cost or on the highway, let's say 70 cents an hour. So where would you not send an autonomous vehicle if you were paying, if the cost to you was 50 cents an hour? Where would you not go? I would say, oh, I forgot my umbrella at work. It looks like rain. Please run home and get that. We will be inventing a huge number of unknown things to do with that vehicle because it costs nothing to move. So if we come down to cities and and the long-term impacts of autonomous vehicles, I am delighting in the future of autonomous vehicles in that I think we can make them all electric and it will dramatically save a lot of lives. It will pr- provide access and mobility to people who right now don't have that access and mobility because they don't have a driver's license. But on the flip side, if we don't get that pricing signal right, and I think it needs to be shared, we will be over-consuming to this gigantic amount because it just is an irrelevant price point to us. Moving that vehicle is just irrelevant to us, and that will have enormous implications for congestion and our cities, which are already today dominated by car traffic. Now, who hasn't sat in gridlock traffic wishing their car could take flight and rise high above the chaos and congestion? Well, one company seeing a solution in the skies is Volocopter. Welcome everybody in front of Volocopter's hangar. Volocopter makes the dream of electrical flights in cities come true. Florian Reuter is its CEO. The original idea um, for Volocopter um, came when we saw more and more of those toy drones, you know, being all around us and how easy they were to be controlled, right? Every kid nowadays can, you know, control one of those very complex um, drones. And um, the principle behind it was really fascinating to us. And we thought, hey, shouldn't it be possible to use those control principles to also build a vehicle that can actually carry humans? It is like a gigantic drone, right? Um, the same control principles, and it adds to that the principle of distributed electric propulsion, um, which means we don't have a single engine anymore, as historical aircraft have, or helicopters in particular had. And we have like a whole system of 18 distributed electric motors that are propelling 18 individual rotors. And that gives us just such a high degree of redundancy that we can cope with individual failures and such get to unprecedented levels of safety. And the thought of, you know, running on electricity, running on renewable electricity and using batteries, um, you know, came very early and we were very um, adamant about staying all electric, uh, you know, not going down the hybrid route, not going down the conventional uh, energy sources route, simply because we said, 
anything that we want to apply in the city of the future at scale absolutely needs to be sustainable. There's just no other way around it. And um, you know, electric um, power, meaning batteries, are the only way that you know can pave uh, a, a roadmap towards that full sustainability. We're certainly not where we want to be just yet, but we have a clear roadmap towards that. Test flights have been carried out in Dubai and Singapore, and Volocopter hopes to have its first paying passengers in the next few years. We have announced Singapore and Paris as the two cities in pole position for first routes. Um, and we expect them to be go to go live sometime around the end of 2022, early 2023. We selected Singapore and Paris as our starting cities um, for a variety of reasons. What was interesting in Paris is that um, they have the upcoming Olympics in 2024. And um, this really mastered um, a whole consortium of um, private and public players in Paris to come together and say, look, we want urban air mobility to be in place for the 2024 Olympics. And in order to get there, you know, we need to be fully operational by 2023. And that means we need to, you know, kick kick it off now, select, you know, um, um, a partner who we can um, implement this with and so on and so on. So by this natural, you know, timeline towards the Olympics, um, we were able to really find um, all of the necessary stakeholders in a city environment to come together and be working with us very actively towards meeting that timeline. Um, Singapore, on the other hand, is the perfect role model for the future city, right? Many other cities around the world are looking towards Singapore for implementing futuristic solutions also in their city environment. And um, Singapore has a great reputation of being able to safely and efficiently implement new technologies and as such serves as a role model to many cities around the world, particularly in the Southeast Asian and wider Asian region where we see the greatest potential actually for our volocopter operations. And the idea is they'll be as easy to hail as a cab or an Uber. You will have an app on your phone. Um, you know, you have a transportation need. You just put in where you are, where you want to go. And, you know, the, the, the phone pretty much suggests you the best uh, mobility option, right? So I also envision this to be integrated into other modes of transportation as well. So seamlessly, intermodally integrated. And then hopefully, you know, the Volocopter will play a role more often than not. And uh, you will be guided, you know, for example, with a grab scooter towards the next Voloport near you, or you can walk there depending on where you are and where the next one is located. Um, you will be completely digitally uh, checked in already. You will be greeted at the Voloport and, you know, get on your ride and it will automatically take you to your destination. Currently, we have a um, all-electric range of 20 miles, which um, pretty much covers the basic center of you know, all mega cities around the world. We have analyzed it. The top 93 of 100 um, airports are actually located within that distance from the city center. So from the start, we can serve all relevant routes in the metropolitan areas around the globe. So while autonomous air taxi rides for two might sound pretty niche, Florian says this is only the beginning. We see the, the current plans really to be the humble beginnings of what ultimately will uh, transcend into a full transformation of urban mobility as we know it today. You know, urban mobility worldwide is a $10 trillion uh, market opportunity. So it's huge. And even just 1% of it is a $100 billion market opportunity, meaning even if urban air mobility stays in a niche for the initial years, you know, this is a market large enough to sustain us and our finance model and maybe, you know, one or two other players for, you know, many years to come. But I think eventually, yes, our technology will continue to advance. We will all get used to it. We will build the necessary digital and physical infrastructures to support operations at scale. And at that point in time, I don't want to predict where it ends. I think it is absolutely feasible to come to a scenario that will you know, somewhat look like the Jetson scenario where everyone who has a mobility need has the aerial option. And you know, in a world where vehicle talks to vehicle, vehicle speaks to infrastructure, right? Internet of things, um, you know, full 5G uh, implementation. It's absolutely feasible to be picking you up on demand at your doorstep and take you directly to your destination. So in terms of how far will this technology you know, go, and um, how much will it transform the way we move about our cities? I think very few people really comprehend the massive amount of change that uh, we're going to see from coming from that technology. And 
Speaking of massive technological change. Three, two, one, watch. What you just heard was the first human passenger test of Virgin's Hyperloop, an ultra-fast transportation system designed to travel at speeds of more than a thousand kilometers an hour. That's three times faster than high-speed rail and would mean a trip from San Francisco to Los Angeles, currently six hours in a car, would take just 43 minutes. Jay Walder is Virgin Hyperloop's CEO. Hyperloop is really the first new form of mass transportation that we've had in over a hundred years. We can combine a, an ultra-efficient vehicle, magnetic levitation, and a low-pressure, low-drag environment to, to be able to allow us to reach airline speeds with one-tenth of the energy consumption. It gives us the ability to be able to transport tens of thousands of passengers per hour. I have worked almost my whole career in transportation. And, and you know, the, the reality is, whether you're the, the chairman and CEO of the MTA in New York or a managing director in, in, in Transport for London, you are always bound by decisions that are made before you, by, by the history of what's there. In the case of London, by 150 years of history of what's there. And, and almost by definition, the changes that you make are incremental. They allow us to take small steps off a model that we've, that we've had before. What Hyperloop is doing right now is giving us the ability to, to think beyond that, to think about what a giant leap might be and what would fundamentally happen in the way that we live our lives, the way we connect places, the way we think about everything we're doing. And, and uh, yes, that's hard and that's complicated to be able to do, but, but, the, but what it unlocks is the ability to be able to think fundamentally differently about the way that we're able to offer a mass transportation service. We also needed to reflect the values that we have today, most prominently the environment. We want it to be something in which we're saying it's the first choice for people to be able to travel because it's the best way to get there in shared mobility and at the same time, the outcome for the environment is much better. So what would the infrastructure for such a high-tech transport concept look like? So if we think about the way that trains operate or the way that, that planes operate, in, in all of those cases, we're dealing with what nature may be putting in front of us, whether it's a snowstorm, whether it's leaves on the track, whether it's turbulence in the air. Hyperloop has its own contained environment in which, it, in which it's working. And, and what we put through that, that tube are pods. Um, they're relatively small vehicles. Uh, we, we anticipate that they will hold 25 to, to 30 people in a, in a single pod. It's going to float on magnetic levitation. So it will be super smooth. I like to tell people that, that you can literally hold a cup of coffee while you're traveling at, at 1,000 kilometers an hour. So all of these pieces come together. And then the final part, which is not a physical piece of infrastructure, uh, is the control system. Effectively, um, we've created a, a low drag environment. We've created uh, an, an electric vehicle. Um, we've created the, the ability to be able to, to, to have smooth operations. And now the last part of this is autonomous. It allows us to be able to operate this completely autonomously with, with the computers and the sensors actually operating this system. And so it, it really combines so much of what we actually see today in the way that we're able to do it. Okay, given the thousands of miles of tracks and tubes that would need to be built, where in the world is currently best suited to the Virgin Hyperloop concept? with our partner, Dubai Ports World, DPW, um, is that we're looking at the way in which we can deal with both cargo and people um, in, the, in the Emirates and potentially a connected Gulf, uh, thinking about how we actually 
reshape this. And that's an area that, that you would really look at and say is largely greenfield. The transportation networks have not yet been developed there. Um, in India, we've been working on a project from Mumbai to Pune. Uh, this project, these are two of the most congested cities in the entire world, uh, wonderful cities. They're separated by about 130 kilometers. Uh, today, this is almost a four-hour trip. And people tell me it's four hours if you're lucky. Um, we will turn this trip into less than 30 minutes. And so we've been designated as the official project proponent for this Mumbai Pune project to be able to bring this forward. And then finally, uh, one of the other areas that I'm incredibly excited about is the United States. I mean, we have seen a, a real movement toward Hyperloop uh, just in the last couple of years. Um, and uh, we have a, a president-elect now who, who comes into office with, with a clear mandate to say that he wants to see us improve high-capacity, energy-efficient mobility across the country. Um, and, and I think Hyperloop fits directly with that. As some cities slowly start to recover from the devastating blow dealt by COVID-19, how does Jay see that having an impact on how we plan for the future? Well, I, I think one of the things, and, and, and you know, it's hard to talk about a silver lining in a, in a global pandemic, but I think one of the things that the pandemic is doing is it's unlocking us from, from a lot of the predispositions uh, that we had. I think it gives us the opportunity perhaps to break away from inertia in, in doing it. And as we come out of this, to be imagining things that are different and better than what we had uh, before. All of the projections pre-pandemic were that two thirds of the world's population would be living in cities by the year 2050. I don't think the pandemic changes that over the long term. I think it has clearly has some impact in the short term, but I don't think it changes it over the, over the long term. We know that cities are, are, are sort of the, 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 the petri dish of innovation, of, of, of uh, productivity that's there. And there's lots of good reasons why we want to be able to deal with that. But we also know that density uh, comes with drawbacks. And, and we've seen that. The, the, the large cities that we have today with six ring roads certainly cannot be the way that we imagine uh, the, the cities of the future in doing it. If you can connect cities like metro stops, if hours literally become minutes, then we come to a fundamentally new form of regionalization, one that allows the movement of people and goods in ways that we didn't imagine before, that allows us to take advantage of, of the benefit of what cities have uh, literally within minutes. Um, I love the thought that we can be in a city, take a bike share bike to, to a portal, that's our, our phrase for a station, hop on a Hyperloop and be in another place within minutes. I think that unlocks so much for us. I think it unlocks the, the connection, the ability to have a knowledge economy and a labor market that, that's, that's uh, accessible to everybody in, in doing it. It allows us to have access to the things that we enjoy, that we've missed so much right now, but we can do it in a different way and perhaps creating much, much more flexibility than we've ever imagined before. So, as our journey comes to an end, and we reflect on how all these different transport solutions could play a crucial role in improving the lives of billions of people in cities around the world, we return to Kevin Mayno for a final thought on how to best shape our decision-making in the coming decades. Let's think about what we actually want to sustain as a society, and I think that those ideas then don't don't get lost in a sort of environmental um, question, but, but think about that the, these ideas of inclusion, these ideas of, of who has access to healthcare, access to green space, access to, to other opportunities, access to education um, are important. And so if, if a transport system is built on that basis, you know, I, I think it definitely helps move in the right direction. great opportunity we have had not just this week which we should also talk about where we talked about the future of urban mobility but over these four series that we have produced it's been a very different journey for us outrage and optimism through this partnership with neste to have this in-depth investigations into the future of transportation 
I, I think it's been a really different form of podcasting. Have you guys enjoyed it? It has been rather, um, yeah, a very different experience because A, it allows us to go deeper into these topics um, and it allows for many different opinions and um, sort of approaches to the topic to be brought in into an integrated whole. So, um, yeah, it's been very different, very different. I, I have to admit, guys, that it took me a while to warm up to that style of podcasting, but um, I really appreciate it now. Mm. I've got all these little memories of amazing things. Uh, uh, Mr. Picard talking about how no uh, airplane company was interested in electric airplanes, and then he flew a solar plane around the world with a fantastic team. And... Um, and now every airplane company is looking at electric airplanes or the uh, manager of Formula E saying that uh, the Formula E cars had to race through London at like three in the morning and they would only get permission to race if nobody complained. And nobody that was did lovely. Complain. <laughs> totally silent Formula One car is fantastically exciting. So like all these different slices of technology in shipping and airplanes, urban mobility, transport, it's like you suddenly realize that underneath uh, the, uh, the, the the sort of superstructure of climate change, there's just millions and millions of little revolutions happening. It's great. Yeah. I, I've learned so much, I have to say. I mean, I sort of think of myself as someone who's broadly educated around what's going on on climate change, but having the opportunity to dive into this, to have these series of different conversations, as you say, all these innovators, these creative people who are really at the cutting edge of what they're trying to do, really transforming their sector. I've sort of, I'd never really thought in a structured and detailed way as I did during these podcasts about that. And I've really enjoyed it. I think it's been great. It's been very different. The feedback from listeners has been fantastic. Everyone seems to have really enjoyed it. So I guess it's all about, you know, doing this podcast. How do you keep it fresh? How do you keep changing things up? Trying different approaches. Um, so, and to me, this has been a really good one. I have to say a big thank you to Catherine Hart, who's been our series producer. Mm, and I have to say, thank I think you, we've Catherine. been better prepared for these podcasts than we've been for any other podcast we've ever done. Although it's a low bar though, isn't it? Yeah. There is a problem because uh, Catherine's like a professional from the broadcast <laughs> industry and actually brings, you know, expertise essentially in how to do this properly. And it's revealed, you know, spectacular levels of incompetence amongst much of what we've been doing since the start. <laughs> so I do, you know, that's a problematic character. But otherwise, Catherine, I mean, it's hardly, hardly an insult. It's a huge compliment. Thank you. You've revealed our own incompetence to us. Have you enjoyed being scripted, Paul? Because I know that's one of your dreams. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I would love to hear some words from Catherine. Yes. How has it been for her? She's the kind of puppet master behind. I don't know if she'll come off like, you know, the Zoom. But if, will she speak? The listener, she's not on video yet. Listener, or will she know. even associate herself directly with the Outrage and Optimism brand? No, We're about to find out. It's been an absolute pleasure. No, it's been an absolute pleasure to have been invited into the family and... Um, and and to be and, and obviously and I realise it is a a break from how things are done normally and I appreciate all the hard work that I've made everyone do yep, over, a lot over yeah <laughs> over and above the norm um, yes 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 <laughs> so I apologise for the twenty page documents that used to thump into your inboxes but um, no it's been an absolute pleasure um, and even and even I um, you know I've learned a great deal myself um, as well and it's just been fascinating to speak to so many different people and um and also the the enthusiasm that's out there i think um mm. and wanting to speak on you know on the podcast it was never an issue trying to get people to come on so that's testament to i think what you've what you've been doing up until now so yeah so just good luck and thank you mm. No, there's a lesson there that, you know, you, you start off with like real incompetence and then eventually professionals just appear. It's magic. <laughs> well, this is the end of the series, although I am, I, I am very sure that this has been, I mean, to my mind, so fun and such a success that I very much hope we will continue working with Catherine and keep exploring this mode of podcasting as we go forward. Um, of course, regular listeners to the podcast will know that we are embarking on a series in partnership with COP26 and the Race to Zero that is going to be somewhat similar in style to these podcasts in the sense that there'll be more ongoing conversations, deep dives into particular issues. So the style isn't going away. Um, we'd like to say a big thank you to Neste. This mm. series, you probably could tell uh, by the fact that Catherine is here and the reference to the big documents, these were a lot more work, these podcasts, and we couldn't have done it without financial support from Neste, for which we are very grateful. Um, and um, And obviously wish them all the best as well in their work to transform the world of transportation. 
So with that, we will be back to our regular programming next week. This has been a great episode today on the future of urban mobility. It's been a great mini series on the future of transportation. Thank you for coming with us on this journey. We look forward to what's next in this most decisive of years, in this most decisive of decades. We'll see you next week. Bye. So there you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. I'm Clay, producer of the podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. If this is your first episode in this mini-series that you're hearing, I've put a link in the show notes that will take you right to where you can listen to the previous three episodes that we've done. They're investigative episodes, just like this one, but we talk about the future of flight, fuels, and shipping. So go check it out. And if you're just finishing this series with us now, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We read every single one and it really helps other people find the show. So thank you. Okay, time for the credits. Outrage and Optimism is a global optimism production. Our executive producer is Marina Mancilia Herman, and this episode was produced by Clay Carnell and Catherine Hart. Catherine, I'm going to miss getting 20-page documents in my email from you. Okay, maybe not so much, but I will miss joining all of the Zoom interviews with you. Amazing work on the series. I'm looking forward to the next one. Catherine Hart, everyone. Okay, so we get this question all the time. Who is Global Optimism? We are Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Lara Richardson, Sophie McDonald, Freya Newman, Sarah Thomas, Sue Reed, Sharon Johnson, and John Ward. And our hosts are Tom Rivet-Karnak, Cristiana Figueres, and the Paul Dickinson. Thank you to our guests this week for making the episode possible. Kevin Mayno, Pia Heidenmark-Cook, Robin Chase, Claire Burungi, Sergio Avileda, Jay Walder, Florian Reuter, and Shirley Rodriguez. And speaking of finishing the series, whoa, a celebration is in order. Thank you to Neste for sponsoring. I I actually should have done this way further away from my computer. I should have done this further away from my computer. There's champagne on my I gotta wipe it down. This might, this might be the most expensive way to wreck your computer. <laughs> thank, you to, <laughs> thank you to Neste for sponsoring this mini-series. I, it feels like just yesterday when we had our first Zoom meeting together. Actually, I think it was on Google. We had our first Google Meet meeting together and this mini-series was just a dream but now it's a reality. So congratulations on a great series. Thank you to Peter Vanneker, Sana Helstead, Krista Lindell, Elena Lamintausta, and Mina Liang Sormunen. And while we wish we could take all the credit for making this episode happen, there are so many people who worked around the clock to make what you heard possible. So thank you to Malin Vincent, Christopher Cost, Carolyn Mimano, Allison Yu, Sarah Lawson, Lauren Montgomery Kennedy, and Lucy Prince. So I hate to break it to you, but this episode is about to end. But the fun does not stop here. Follow us on social media at Global Optimism, where we keep you updated on the state of stubborn optimism and climate. And while you're at it, send us a message. We love hearing from you. Okay, I've poured the champagne. That is a wrap on episode four, The Future of Urban Transport and The Future of Transport series sponsored by Neste. Join us next week with artist, author, illustrator, and friend of Tom's, Oliver Jeffers. The two of them have this like secret club that we're all trying to get into. So, you know, will we get an invite? Find out next week. Hit subscribe and we'll see you then.